It's time for Talent Talk. Join Chris Dyer from People G2 as he interviews top executives about leadership and talent development. Take it away, Chris. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining me. My name is Chris Dyer, and I'll be your host for the next hour. In case you're tuning in for the first time, the Talent Talk radio show features a wide range of guests who care about talent. On this show, we'll talk about talent in two ways. First, as it relates to success and uncovering the secrets of really talented people, like my guest today. And second, we also talk about talent in relation to human resources and HR leaders who really want to try to find the best candidates today. Hopefully that makes sense. The word talent here has a couple different meanings in the business world, and this show will explore those two areas. My guests include CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR executives from all types of industries. When I'm out at networking events and industry conferences, I have the privilege of meeting inspiring leaders all the time. I created this forum to allow you to listen in on our dialogue and learn some practical advice that will hopefully impact your own career in a positive way. Before I get to my guests today, Subu Murthy and Lisa Gallagher, I'd like to share a little bit about our sponsor uh, of the, today's show, People G2. The Talent Talk radio show is brought to you by People G2, a company that I founded in 2001. People G2 is dedicated to helping clients with their people-related decisions by giving them access to the best human capital due diligence and background checks on prospective candidates, business partners, tenants, and more. People G2 was recently named one of the best places to work in Orange by the Orange County Business Journal, and we're very proud of that. To learn more about People G2, please visit us online at www.peopleg2.com. You can also follow us at People G2 on Facebook, and of course our Twitter handle is at People G2. I want to thank those of you who are tuning in live today, but don't forget you can submit your questions uh, to my guests live via Twitter. Just tweet your question to at PeopleG2, hashtag Talent Talk, and my producer Mike will feed me the best questions and we'll try to work them into the show. Don't forget you can listen to our show via podcast on iTunes as well as subscribe to have the weekly show sent to you. If you're already listening to the podcast, thank you. With that said, let's get the today's show started. My guests today again are Subu Murthy and Lisa Gallagher. I'll be talking to Lisa in the second half of the show, so let's get started. Subu, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Chris. It's a pleasure and privilege to have both known you and to be on the show. Thank you. So tell us about yourself and your organization, You Govern IT. About myself, you know, a 30-plus year veteran in technology. You don't want to actually mention 30-plus years, so kind <laughs> of people will feel you're obsolete, but... Having stayed with the technology revolutions, it's been an exciting space for me personally. And my organization actually helps people manage technology more efficiently and more effectively. Great. And you also have a connection to the Braille Institute of America. What's the connection there? Very good question. Um, you government produces a product that helps CIOs manage technology. And a subset of our organization provides some boutique services to organizations who need help in governing and managing technology. For example, when organizations that are small who cannot afford to bring a high-powered executive like a CIO from a Fortune 500, what they do is they bring people like us who share our services across multiple organizations. Enabled by the tool, we are able to bring the Fortune 500 CIO talent to small to mid-sized market at the price that they can afford. Wow, that, that, that uh, sounds like a great service. And I think there was another connection to the Braille Institute of America. I think, was there someone in your family who... You bring up a point, and one of the things is when Braille Institute invited me to implement our technology, as I was walking through with the CEO, looking at how they served 80,000-plus visually impaired people in the Southern California community, and having been raised by a grandmother who was blind, okay. it had a strong connection Right. And when Braille invited me to be their CIO, it was a natural fit for me to offer our services to them. And I go there about two days a week working as F CIO on demand at the Braille Institute of America. Now I'm able to bring not only my technology, but also my insights as a CIO, how to manage technology uh, in a not-for-profit sector. Well, that, that's a great story and a good connection there, you know, and how you, how you got involved with them. Being the maybe the guru of CIOs, and I know your your service, uh, you govern it, really brings in a unique 
set of tools and 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 uh, software to help people you can may, maybe even term it a dream service for cios so how does your service really help them deal with talent across the spectrum of employees with with completely different sets of of abilities and specializations how, how does your service do that another good question if you look at the role of a cio part of it is to keep the lights on maintain the technology infrastructure keep up with the technology and maintain the resources that help maintain the technology. That's one special brand of people who are actually dealing with all the technical components. Then there is another group of people he has to manage who deal with the business end, that is, trying to identify technology that makes sense for the business. These people, typically called analysts, are a different group of people with different skill sets. Then you have the innovators who develop technology. So a CIO is challenged to maintain three diverse groups of people. To manage that, you needed different tools. And the problem having different tools was not only the technologies were different, but you had to integrate all the data, and the CIO was losing clarity in managing the three groups. So what you governor did is brought a common platform to manage the three different types of resources, providing the same kind of efficiency and effectiveness on the common platform, but providing those services which are unique to each of these three categories. So, for example, if you take user requests, user requests deal with day-to-day needs of uh, IT consumers. Then if you take requests from organizations to improve their efficiency, like a new technology system, that's a whole different type of people. And the last one, of course, is innovation. How does the CIO help bring innovation to the enterprise? So what we, what Governor did is brought all these tools to one common platform so that a CIO didn't have to go hunt around a dozen tools to effectively manage its resources. And that has promoted managing the unique kind of technical talent that the CIO manages, in addition to the business expertise that is needed, okay, to enable the technology to deliver what is actually needed for the enterprise. So from a CIO's perspective, is there a particular one of those three groups that's more challenging to, to really manage, and then maybe your platform <laughs> helps them in a particular way there? Again, you're asking a very tough and good question, which we CIOs always are challenged. Depending on the maturity of the organization, organizations that have not invested in technology, the challenges are to bring in the technology and bring them relevant to the marketplace. And such organizations, the resources are more to bring external technology in, train and implement those processes. That's one type of challenge. To those CIOs, managing services and projects are very critical. To the companies that are forward-facing, those have already implemented technologies but not need to have technology enable their enterprise gain a competitive advantage. Those are a different skill set. These are the innovators. And to those companies, bringing in uh, analytics, business intelligence, ability to mine and manage data are more critical. So depending on whether the CIO is faced with organizations that are technologically behind the curve, are those that need innovation to give them a competitive edge. They face different challenges. And that, that was actually a good challenge for us itself in it to bring both different types of expertise into the tool. And we did that by componentizing. Uh, we have a services component, a project component to manage for the first type of CIO I mentioned. Then we have the analytics and the governance component where we actually enable innovation and assess which are the technology investments that provide better value. Well, and you gave a, a fairly diplomatic answer there, but I think if we drill down a little bit, from my experience, I've noticed the innovators are the ones that you want the most in your organization, but can also be the most difficult to manage and deal with because they want to change and change and change and change and constantly evolving the process. And many times the organization and the people around can't keep up. And so that sometimes is a challenge in having these great people with great ideas is they're pulling the rest of the organization with them. Have you seen that at that level? It is, and particularly in small to mid-sized enterprises, uh, you have forces that drag you, and it is very, very hard to change the way they have been doing. And these innovators will come in and implement processes which actually will help transform the organization, but technology is very interesting. It's it's useless if it is not used. So the challenge for the innovators is how do you get adoption? Adoption becomes an extremely important component. 
Uh, one of the benefits, though, of innovators is they bring fresh ideas. Then, I, you know, to answer your question, you need actually in an organization all three components. You need the stable component, which manages what is going on. These are the people who keep the lights on. They do day-to-day -day work. They are not your innovators. They do what they do best. These are focused silo experts. Then, on the other extreme, you need these innovators who bring in very disruptive ideas. Okay, and they are very difficult to manage. Fortunately, you don't need very many of them in the organization. Then, in the middle is the people who bridge the gap between technology and the business. They are actually very hard to find in the organization, and that's one of the reasons why in talent management you do get the innovators. They are you know surprising that there is a talent pool available, and you get the people who are very stable. It's finding the people who can really transform technology to business needs. Those are the most difficult people to find in the in in the in the industry. So we look to organizations to provide those kind of people for us. And, well, and that's why organizations probably need you and your service as well, because those are, are difficult to find. Well, it seems like your work and experience with your current company now, you, you govern it, and of course also with the Braille Institute of America, are very unique. How do you think your experiences now, and, and of course the ones you, you've been through in the past over the last 30 years you mentioned, how have they really influenced the type of leader you are today? From, you know, if you have to look at it uh, from two tracks, one is the people management track. Uh, the influence is in technology, you always learn. No matter how many years of experience you have, you have to keep an open mind to learn and adapt. So having good people around you who can help you understand what's happening in the outside is a great asset. On the other side, as you think of leadership, as you think of uh, one of the you know aha moments in me was I was running an IT services company and I became a CIO and I thought there were two different job functions being a CEO and a CIO. Then one of the aha moments was that really a CIO is running a services within a business. It's a business within a business, and if you take that view, then the roles of a CEO of an IT services company and the role of a CIO as IT services provided internally to the enterprise are not that different. And that's kind of almost, con you know, contrarian in view, that a CIO and CEO are the same. That's one aspect. The second aspect is the evolution of the CIO itself. In the past, they were back office. They were doing your payroll. They were doing your administrative functions. Then came products like SAP and all, which integrated manufacturing, finance, and all together. Then came products like Salesforce.com, which also brought in how to manage salespeople, okay, internal operations, and the back office. So the role of the CIO started evolving. From the back office, they started suddenly moving up. And once they had a seat at the table, they were not trained how to think like the people who were already trained like head of operations or marketing. Oh, I see. That mm -hmm. evolution in the CIO is happening, and it's a good thing. In fact, the litmus test for it is how many CIOs actually go in and turn out to become CEOs of the organization. That's a good litmus test. Wow. Yeah, uh, and, and you, you don't necessarily hear those stories. I mean, I can't think of an example, uh, at least a, you know, a very common, well-known example, of a CIO turning into a CEO. But I think you're right. I mean, if they can deliver services within that company inside of a company, there's no reason why they couldn't evolve into that position as well. Exactly. And I, I knew the former CIO at Walmart who actually started heading up the business unit within Walmart. And then the CIO at RealD turned into more like a COO function as they evolved. And it, you bring up a point. That's like one of the key things from employee selection perspective. In the past, CIOs were looking at techies or just had business. Now they're looking at core executive talent as well. And that's a good sign. It's a good sign because it provides another additional source of the future leader for organizations. So it sounds like with some of the aha moments and the things that you mentioned about always learning, you know, my next question, I think I already know the answer to. So, you know, it's have you changed as a leader um, as your organizations have grown and changed? So I, I think the answer is probably yes. So maybe you can dive into that and tell me, maybe you could describe some of those real specific changes that you felt like you went through and why they were important. The balance between... Uh, what you had known in the past and what you incul inculcate is a process that I can't quantify, 
But what I have learned personally is that measurement-centered management, okay, to actually make that work. In the past, uh, management decisions were intuitive. We didn't have the technology to analyze mind data to give us inputs to make decisions. While you can't make all decisions algebraically through analytics, there is intuition still is a very big component of management. But what I've tried to do over a period of time is to bring in measurement-based management into my practice. And that has proved useful to me in not only managing the staff and providing guidance on how we can grow. It has also been a useful measure for me to give back to the organizations that are investing in us. As a CIO, I look upon the investment in IT as, you know, as something an organization is giving us and what can we give back. So the measurement-oriented techniques are very, very valuable there. So as I'm evolving, I'm slowly learning to balance between intuition and the algebraic intelligence that we need to manage. I'm not saying I've found the happy medium yet, okay? But I think over time, as computing becomes easier and friendlier, people will start adopting more measurement-based techniques into their management style. Right. Well, it really seems like you have a high level of passion and and drive for this type of work and this this area within a, a successful company is going to have to have with their technology and management. So, how important do you think it is for people to really love what it is they're doing? <laughs> if all, I mean, if I had to take one lesson from this discussion we have had, if you don't like something, unless there is a compelling reason, don't do it. Mm-hmm. And I, I use this sim- very simple framework. What is your capability and what are your interests? The match between your capability and interest is probably the most happy medium. And if you're forced to do things in which you don't have the talent, okay, you will not you know, uh, probably do very well at it. Having the talent alone is not enough. If you are not passionate, you will not put in that little extra, that little extra factor that takes you to another level. I think attitude and then aptitude are two mm-hmm. magic words. And I personally always look at attitude. And attitude is pleasant and positive if there is a passion behind it. Yeah, it's amazing how an attitude changes when people are in the right job for them, where they're happy, they're passionate, they're feeling connected to their coworkers and to the organization. You can take that exact same person in any one role and put them in a completely different department and now their attitude changes, their work level changes. I mean, taking someone who's a customer service person and putting them in back doing the books, let's say, or taking a technology person who's maybe dealing with the actual programming and coding and putting them in customer service. I mean, rapidly different, even though they may be very well educated, a very uh, you know a good business person, but having them in the right place at the right time really has huge effect. Uh, it surprises me how little sometimes companies put an effort into really making sure they have that person with the right attitude, as you mentioned, before the right aptitude. Absolutely. In fact, I, I want to quote you in at one of the discussions we had earlier. You were talking about how you don't come back and set preset hours. You make the job more interesting for the person to do. And that I think that's a very key message. Having When, when I talked about measurement-based management, Measurement-based management is a guideline. But measurement-based management will not introduce passion in the work you do. So it's very important to align, okay, work to the interest of the individual and to their talent. Do you think there's a specific skill or technique that really contributes to your role, but maybe over time is something you had to learn or develop within yourself? If I have to confess... The ability to listen was a very difficult one for me. Coming from technology, where most of it was me and the machine, the human interaction was not there. And when the human interaction came, the propensity to talk about it, as opposed to listening and learning, and that quickly changed when we started actually implementing systems. Even the best of the systems we designed were not getting acceptance because we were not listening to the voice of our customer. And I think starting to listen to the voice of the customer. And it's not just hearing. It's hearing, assimilating, and transforming that to what they really need. That's, you know, what I, that is a transformation. And I'm not there yet. I'm still evolving from 
a person who is to deliver technology into listening and delivery. I think that's going to become the modality. And organizations like, if you look at the big ones like Apple, Amazon, they've been very successful because they've been able to listen to the actual need of what consumers want. And I think that's what we as CIOs or you know, technologists have to learn and evolve to. So you know, as a CEO or CIO, who or what has had the greatest impact in your leadership development? I have to, the answer is very simple. There are many, but one that I have to talk about is my father, who is not here with us anymore. In 1964, he started the first executive MBA program in India under the leadership of the president of India, who was himself a scholar. In 69, he inspired um, many, many uh, physicians to start a chartered service to provide free medical care to the rural who did not have the ability to afford that. When before the internet, he was actually facilitating a lot of collaboration between India and U.S., bringing in some of the more modern uh, uh, method, uh, you know, aspects of U.S. management into India. And he was very fasc- fascinated by it. He was awarded the honorary doctorate from Cornell University. And uh, he, he was, as a childhood, not only he led the Chamber of Commerce in India, he was a thought leader providing ideas. He constructed many microfinance ideas even before uh, other people brought that out to light. So he today, he was single-handedly my inspiration uh, in in all walks of life, in in management. Just to give you an example, he visited me in 1981. He was seeing me build software for the Lockheed L-1011, and he came out with a statement, why aren't you thinking of it like a factory where you can develop processes that can streamline this technology development. Technology is taking too much cost. You should be thinking about what you're doing to your customer. Wow. Well, it sounds like he was a very unique person and had quite a bit of leadership to be able to do that at that time, as you mentioned, without the Internet, to start having this collaboration between people. I'm sure he had a huge impact on you as well. You know, I know you've had a huge impact on me. I I still have this one thing that you said to me one time that I think about almost every day, and I tell people about all the time. And and you told me, you said, as a CEO, it is your job to deal with the problems. And as soon as you accept it and start enjoying it, your whole frame of mind will change, your whole life will change. And I, I, I started doing that a few years back when you told me that. And it had a profound impact on how I started interacting with my staff within my company within my life and so i wanted to thank you for that because that was just a fabulous piece of advice maybe it came from you maybe it was something you learned from your father but uh it it really it really made a big difference and start looking at these problems as my it's my job to fix things it's my job to do this thank you so much chris it's been a pleasure genuine pleasure knowing you we didn't get to all of our questions today, but I know uh, one important question we want to make sure we ask is if people are interested in reaching you or finding out more about your company, you govern it, how do they do that? The easiest way is to go to our website, www.u, the letter U, governit.com. And as the name says, it's your governance. And, uh, or, you know, they could reach out to me. We're still a small company where we can respond to you in quick time. And, they can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm you know, well-connected on LinkedIn, and I'll accept any invitation. Thanks again. Well, great. Thank you so much, Suba, for being on the Talent Talk radio show. It was an extreme pleasure uh, being able to talk to you today. Up next, Lisa Gallagher will be on the show after this quick commercial break. Thank you. talk about your family business? You know, that thing you put your whole life's blood, sweat, and tears into? Well, what happens when you retire or try and pass that business on to your children? At Succession Strategies, we can help you find the answers. We'll guide you through the unsettling process 
of protecting your family legacy and successfully passing your business on to the next generation safely and securely, ensuring that it'll both survive and thrive for generations to come. So ask yourself just one question. Can I really afford to wait? Take the first step. Take our complimentary self-assessment at SuccessionStrategies.com or call us at 714-560-9022 to set up a free consultation at your convenience. That's Succession-Strategies.com. When you use the Premier Rewards Gold Card from American Express, the rewards points can keep on multiplying. Buy three with triple points on airfare. Buy two with double points on gas and groceries. And a single point for pretty much every other dollar you spend on the card. Then, start choosing from over a million rewards to redeem all those points. Apply today and the annual fee for the first year is on us. Call 1-800-AXP-GOLD or visit AXPGOLD.COM. The annual fee for the card is $175. See terms, conditions, and restrictions at AXPGOLD.COM. Imagine how it would feel to lose everything. Your job, your home, your family, your dignity. This has happened to thousands of the clients we serve at Working Wardrobes. Men, women, veterans, young adults. Our clients want desperately to put their lives back together. They want to get on the road to success again. With our help, they'll make it. What does Working Wardrobes do to help? We provide career development services, life skills workshops, job skills training. We provide the perfect interview outfit, and we get clients placed in jobs. Then we get to hear our four favorite words. I got the job. Call Working Wardrobes, 714-210-2460, workingwardrobes.org, to donate, to volunteer, to invest, to hire clients. CBS News. I'm Harley Carnes. The Justice Department challenged the merger today of American Airlines and U.S. Airways, joined by six states in the lawsuit. CBS News travel editor Peter Greenberg. This is an opportunity now for both American and U.S. Air to go back to the Justice Department and the Department of Transportation and say, okay, what do we have to give up to make this work? What kind of horse trading goes on in terms of routes, slots, gates, even cities, so that we can maintain at least the semblance of competition out there with other carriers Tom Parsons at bestfares.com. They're all be competing with special fares or maybe, hopefully, better improvement in the skies. If approved, more than 80% of the domestic air travel market will be controlled by four huge airlines. The Centers for Disease Control claim alcohol costs society nearly $2 for every drink any person consumes. Sabrina Gibbons is in Atlanta. You and I are paying for all that drinking. Over 70% of those costs were specifically due to binge drinking, which is defined as four or more drinks on an occasion for a woman, five or more drinks on an occasion for a man. That's Dr. Robert Brewer with the CDC. He says the overall cost of excessive drinking is a whopping $223.5 billion dollars and some 80,000 people die each year from drinking too much. The CDC claims excessive alcohol is costing the nation an awful lot of money every year, about $3 billion. Israel releasing some Palestinian prisoners, 26 of them, ahead of the latest round of peace talks slated to start tomorrow in Jerusalem. Health experts have said it for years. Processed sugar is poison. Turns out it is toxic to mice, even in safe doses. Experiments done at the University of Utah. Professor Wayne Potts. That would be equivalent to three soft drinks added to a a perfectly healthy, no-added-sugar diet. Females died at twice the normal rate. Males were a quarter less likely to hold their territory or to reproduce. Defense lawyers for Army Private Bradley Manning are blaming his commanders for failing to stop him from giving classified information to WikiLeaks. A temper tantrum Manning had in December of '09, flipping over a table could have cost him his security clearance, his lawyers argue. If it had, WikiLeaks wouldn't have gotten the secret info. Federal authorities have brought charges against nine people in an alleged penny stock fraud worth $140 million. U.S. Attorney Loretta Lynch. The leader of this criminal conspiracy, Defendant Sandy Winnick. His pool of victims, literally the world. Where others looked at the globe and saw citizens of the world, Winnick and his co-conspirators saw only potential marks. The defendants allegedly inflated penny stocks artificially and sold them to investors everywhere, then tricked their victims into paying for lawsuits to try to get their money back. 
On Wall Street, the Dow up about 40 points, NASDAQ up about 15, and oil at more than $106 a barrel. This is CBS News. Okay, let's return to Talent Talk with Chris Steyer and his next guest. Welcome back to Talent Talk Radio. Just a quick reminder, you can subscribe to the podcast of this show or listen to past shows by visiting octalkradio.net and clicking on the Shows tab and, of course, clicking on Talent Talk. In the short time the show has existed, we've already massed a huge following on iTunes, so thank you. My next guest is Lisa Gallagher. Don't forget to tweet those live questions for her by sending them to at peopleg2 and hashtag Talent Talk. Without further ado, Lisa, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me today. My pleasure. So tell us about yourself and your organization. Oh, my company is Abriza. Think of Abriza like the Amazon for home services. We provide home maintenance and improvements for home for professional people that value their time. Remember when you bought your first book from Amazon and it conveniently arrived right at your door? Now, if you're an internet shopper like me, you buy everything from soup to nuts and bolts on Amazon. And Abriza, like Amazon, offers a la carte services that are priced right online in advance so that you can see what you'll pay. In many cases, homeowners today, especially busy professionals, don't have time to shop around. So they call a contractor, the contractor arrives, and it's car in the driveway pricing. You might pay far more than if you had time to shop around. And we solve that problem. When our customers love us, they come back to us, and then we provide more services, including an annual maintenance plan that consists of uh, easy-to-predict uh, tactical sorts of improve- or maintenance items, plus a list of projects that are conducted throughout the year. Super easy. Kind of set and forget. Think about it once, and you don't have to worry about it for the rest of the year. Well, that sounds like an, an incredible service. Um, and what about yourself? Tell us a little bit, little bit about you and how, how you got to this point. Well, prior to Abriza, I was an executive with Higher Right. Um, I was with them for 10 years. We were a venture-backed startup at the end of the Internet boom. Our company was at about $3 million when I joined. Um, we took the company to $65 million, took it public in 2007, and in 2008 we sold the company. I think the real differentiator for us was the talent that we had on the team. Um, our CEO was very uh, meticulous about who he would allow on the bus, so to speak. He interviewed every employee that joined the company for years. <laughs> hmm. That's quite an undertaking, especially for a CEO in a large organization. <laughs> it was. So getting back to Abriza, you know, this is an online platform, as I understand, that connects homeowners and contractors and used Amazon. That's maybe a great way to understand it for those of us that use that all the time. I buy tea on there and guitar picks and all type, different types of things. And, of course, I love the way it gives me suggestions of things I hadn't thought about. So how does your service really help homeowners find the most talented contractors and people because you can get a low bid any time but you also want your work done correctly you don't want it to to fall apart or to be a problem a year later and then you can't find that contractor again so Mm -hmm. how do you really get them in touch with the right person at the right time well as you know with the home maintenance and improvements um, service is really important and we provide excellent service But we've also integrated some technology into our solution so that for each time uh, a service is provided, the best available contractor that is available at the time that you need the service is selected by our patent-pending algorithm. So if, if a contractor doesn't do a good job, over time they just won't get any work orders. Ah, so the best, the best rated and the, and the ones doing the best work are going to start to trickle to the top and those that aren't are trickling down to the bottom as well. Yes. Well, that's great. You know, you have quite an exceptional resume as far as the things that you've done in your past and you mentioned a little bit about your, your last company prior to starting Abriza. How do you think that your experiences from the time you started, I'm sure it wasn't that long ago in the, in the workplace till now, 
How has that really impacted the kind of leader you are today? I would say that um, uh, there are some defining moments in your career, and I think the things that define our character and our direction as leaders are actually the more challenging times. And when you're growing a company really quickly, uh, things go wrong. And it's when things go wrong that you have to dig deep and find out who you really are. So in the world of um, information services, sometimes people make mistakes or technology fails and you report incorrect information. And it was during those times that we that I really defined myself as a leader um, when we stepped forward and approached our customers about um, errors that had been made. And we worked together with them to resolve the issue, even though it was difficult to deliver the information. And we realized that they could have left the or you know they could have left and gone and right. hired another company. Right. But it was more important to us to have integrity. And so you're really showing those moments when it's the most difficult. Have there been any maybe learning moments or things that have impacted you on a positive level? On the spot here. (laughs) I think just having success in my career, that surprised me. Because when, when you're a young person just entering the workforce, everyone's unsure about themselves. And... You know, some people get all of the advantages, like they go to Harvard or or Yale, and they know coming out of the their education that they're going to land a great job. And, you know, when you have an average background and you go out into the world, you really don't know how you'll measure up. And I've been fortunate enough to have great mentors and also opportunity, coupled with opportunity. And so I've had an amazing career. And that's had, you know, a great, it's made me feel really wonderful about the contribution that I've been able to make. So you talked a little bit about, you know, some of the positives. So do you think it's important that within the, your job and your experience that you really need to love what you're doing? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I do. How much do you think that really plays into uh, someone's success in an organization? Well, I think it has a huge, it makes a huge difference, but I think... There are people who love to make a contribution, and it really doesn't matter where they are. Um, when you find these people, you just need to put them to work and help them get where they want to go. You see people that are unhappy in their work lives their entire career, and work is sort of like a, you know, a drudge. And, and it doesn't matter which job you give them. It, it's always going to be like that. So hire people that are excited to go to work every day and then help them get where they want to go. So as you started Abriza in 2010, your company's still in that early stage of growth, and you know we, I've been there. Um, most people know that starting a company is hard work, it's long hours, it's wearing many hats, sometimes all at the same time. But as your company grows, how do you expect to change as a leader, going from having to work 80-plus hours or, or whatever it is and wearing all these hats, as it starts to change, where do you see yourself changing the most? I actually have some experience with this from my past, joining a very fast-growing startup company. We had the front line and the executives. And at that point, all of the thinking work, uh, the structure that was created was done by the executive team. A company won't survive in the long run, survive and thrive uh, with the executives doing um, all the work. So as, as the company grows, you hire people to manage areas and functions that know more about that function than you do. Uh, and you just have to rely on those individuals for information plus metrics and feedback loops uh, to run the organization where in the early days, like you say, you were working 80 hours a week uh, doing everything yourself. You can't do that and scale a company. So I have this theory that, you know, for an organization that is ends up being successful in the long run, they have a leadership that really has to work hard and do those things that we understand about startups. What's a little bit more fuzzy and gray is what happens in the next stages. And so you have to change as a leader in that middle part, and then you have to change again as a leader towards the end of the company, whether it's a sale, whether it's going public, or what have you. 
So you're gonna, at some point going to get to this middle area. So where do you think you're going to change the most? You know, how, how, how does your day-to-day change? I understand you're going to bring in people that are going to have a high level of talent, particular areas to handle things, but do you suddenly become nicer? Do you become more of a planner? Do you become, I mean, where, where does that change really tactically kind of come into play? Your people will tell you. <laughs> they really will. Uh, you can sense it, but your people are going to push you out of the way. That's what you want. You want to hire people that know more about their function than you do, and you want to hire people that will tell you the way it is, and they will push you out of the way when the time is right. And and so does that mean you have to start um, going from you know planning more and having more meetings with people, having more of these d- developing them as leaders themselves? So you have to kind of become more of a teacher. Do you, do you think that that's the middle area is to become the teacher in the organization? When the organization, it, it doesn't happen overnight, but there is an incremental transition. Um, in order to facilitate that as an executive, um, I had a structure in place that was created by myself and my team. And it was a structure for managing the organization. It was quite large, and it included um, you know, a couple hundred people here, but also uh, a couple, like 250 people outside the country. So we had to have a structure in place to to manage that organization, and it relied on metrics and feedback loops so that we could gather quantitative and qualitative information throughout the year. Each year we revisited the structure and changed it based on the scale of the organization. And again, this was a collaborative effort between myself and my team because we wanted information from our internal and external customers, our suppliers, and that information needed to be, and, and, and inputs from the market. So if we had a structure in place to gather that information annually, incorporated into the way that we were managing our business, we were keeping up with the scale of the business. So it sounds like you've had a lot of different influences you know, over your career into the type of leader um, that you've been. What sort of has, has had the biggest impact on you in the type of leader you are today? Um, Well, there are a few people that have been uh, tremendous mentors in my life. Um, I would say the most influential mentor is Arnold Siegel. He teaches a class called Autonomy in Life in Los Angeles and Manhattan. Um, And the purpose of the class is to teach people to be self-governed. It seems easy on the surface, um, but really without... Uh, authoring ourselves intentionally and deciding who it is we would like to be, we end up at the effect of our biology, history, and culture. However, with a, with a structure in place and a great mentor, we can become you know, who it is that we would like to be and achieve our potential. And Arnold Siegel has had that influence on my life. Second, I would say, uh, would be Dwight and Suzanne Frint. Uh, They were both very involved in the uh, strategy, planning, and executive development at Higher Right. Um, Their company, 2130 Partners, provided us with operational principles that we used to develop a very collaborative environment right out of the gate at Higher Right. Um, Dwight Frent was Eric Bowden's uh, executive coach, and Suzanne Frent was my executive coach. Um, and then other executives in the organization were in their respective Vistage groups. Um, I would say that they were instrumental in the company's success. Um, and then finally, Eric Bowden, who was the CEO of the company, was very influential just uh, sort of as an example. Because our company had integrity, and Eric repeatedly, um, quote-unquote, did the right thing when it was required. And that was a great example for me. So you mentioned something about self-governing yourself in the the first part of your your reply there. Can you maybe explain a little bit deeper for me and and for the listeners? What does it mean to self-govern yourself? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, let me use a little example. You know, it's like... The diet industry is probably one of the largest revenue-generating industries in the Western world. And why is that? Well, it's because we say that we want to be more fit and healthier and leaner. 
However, accomplishing that objective is much harder. We're trying to manage ourselves in the moment when the chili cheese fries are right in front of us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I can smell them right now. (laughs) Exactly. And uh, not eating the chili cheese fries when they're right in front of you takes tremendous autonomy, self-governance in that moment. And most of us would just act on the temptation to eat the chili cheese fries. Um, And so this is only one, it's almost like a metaphor for life, right? Will you eat the chili cheese fries? Um, When we are able to gain increasing levels of self-governance, then we script our life, we author our lives, and who it is we are going to be in life. So it sounds like I have self-governance in the morning because I wouldn't eat the chili cheese fries then. <laughs> but the rest of the day, I think I would. <laughs> so uh, one question I like to ask people um, is, what are you reading right now? What books are your, uh, kind of on your, on your plate? Okay, I'm actually reading a lot of books. I gave this some thought. So um, one book is Presenting to Win by Jerry Weissman. Um, and he's considered to be the authority on uh, presenting to raise capital. Uh, When our company went public, uh, we actually had a couple of executives in his training course. Um, So that's one book. And then uh, I just downloaded The Bruges Tapestry, which was written by um, a woman in my e-network group, e-women network group. Um, I'm told that it's a fabulous mystery. I can't wait to get into it. Um, Let's see. I just finished... Let me see. I just finished a couple of books. Um, One was Mr. Penumbra's 24-Hour Bookstore. That's quite a title. I know. It was awesome. That was was great. It was was kind of a mysterious type of uh, story as well. But I I just love to read. So do you find yourself sticking more to the business-type books and inspirational area or do you also kind of get into the fiction and the stories as well is that just as important i try to keep a balance keep a balance yeah i think that the degree to which we can really appreciate literature influences our ability to be creative Mm. and it's there's no direct connection between the ideas that we generate when we intend to be creative and the story we just read but the more of the artistic uh, interests that we pursue, the more creative we are when the time comes. Well, since you bring up creativity, you know, how do you really deal with a creative process and brainstorm effectively with the team, whether it's an organization of two or an organization of a, a thousand or more? I mean, how, how do you really accomplish that? First, it's the leader's responsibility to set the environment for creativity. Uh, When I think about strategic planning and needing to come up with innovation, innovative ideas to address market problems, the CEO needs to get the team out of the tactical environment. The brain can go from strategic to tactical. It can work in that order. It's very difficult for it to go in the reverse order, starting with a tactical idea and then going to strategic. So you need to get the team into a place that's clearly different than where we manage tactical issues day in and day out. Mm. And then start the the process. Is that that a frame of mind, or do you mean like an actual location change? A location change. Okay. Um, You know, if you're a startup, it might be a conference room that you rented, or even better yet, a conference room that someone loaned you for the day. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So it's low cost. And then... Uh, start the meeting with something that accesses the right brain, right? Some Something that's innovative or creative that just gets the right brain working. And then dive into the brainstorming process with a variety of different activities that allow people to get all of their ideas out on paper before anyone ever... Uh, evaluates the, you know, whether or not one idea is better than another. Yeah, one great example I remember, I can't remember if it was in a book or someone had told me this, but you know, they got some people in a room, farmers in New Zealand in a room, and said, how do we, you know, increase the amount of things that they're actually growing there? I mean, people come with these very tactical ideas, and finally they changed the whole thing. And someone finally said, well, if we could move 
the island to another part of the hemisphere, that would solve the problem. That was a kind of creative thing. So, of course, you can't move that to the, you know, the right part of the hemisphere that they want to be in. But it did get them thinking about can they start recreating these different types of environments by modifying these complex greenhouses and all mm-hmm. these different solutions to come up with the right scenario to start you know, producing more of their food instead of importing so much of it. So it's a very similar thing. To get people thinking about mm-hmm. and not editing themselves mm-hmm. is a huge, huge task. Right. You know, it's something we, the example you gave of giving them something to think about creative in the mm-hmm. beginning is a great way. And I, I tend to find we have to try to remind them not to edit. Not mm-hmm. to, not, not to, you know, in this instance, not to self-govern themselves, to let it all out, <laughs> let it all keep flowing out of their brain, and then we'll start to, to pick it apart and, and get more specialized. Right. Well, and as the CEO of the company, it's great if you can bring a facilitator in mm. and you sit in the room just like any other member of the team. And it's even more important that as the CEO, you don't critique the ideas as they as they are delivered right because the people just hang on your every word in some situations when you want to get all the creative ideas out on the table it may be that last idea that really changes the course of the company well that's a great idea i mean the ceo actually sitting as a part of a member of the team and letting someone else facilitate and there are certainly people out there who specialize in this but if you're a startup i mean you could grab someone that you trust and have them do it doesn't have to be an expert if you're just starting out just having that process and having somebody else run it is a great idea mm-hmm. great idea yeah well we're starting to run out of time here so i wanted to make sure we uh let everyone know exactly how can they get a hold of you and how can they find out about about a breeze if they're interested in learning more Okay. Well, our number is 800-588-9350, or we can be reached by email at care at com, And please be sure to visit our website at com, where you can learn more about what we do and how we can save you time and money. And how do you spell Abriza, just for any of us that don't know how to spell correctly? A-B-R-I-Z-A. Perfect. Well, thank you, Lisa, so much for being my guest today on the show. It was a pleasure. That's about all the time that we have. Uh, Again, thank you to my special guests, Subu Murthy and Lisa Gallagher. Tune in next week at the same time, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, for Talent Talk, brought to you by People G2. Uh, Next week, you'll be hearing a pair of mics. First is Mike Munch, the former CEO of Line 6, and Mike Vo, who's an entrepreneur in a really rapidly growing startup, Miss Nails. And they're going to be here to share their thoughts on talent. Until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be. Thank you. You've been listening to Talent Talk, the only show that talks to top executives about leadership and talent development. Right here on OCTalkRadio.net.